How many of you enjoyed Larry's fifth and last Habakkuk Award presentation? Don't you think five's a nice round number just to cut that off? How, how did it get that far anyway? Oh, that must be how I got all the awards, so that's why I like this. Um, Today is the fifth in uh, what will be a series of six messages that focus our attention on the events leading up to and including the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we have uh, traveled on the road to resurrection, we've learned that things aren't always as they appear at first glance, and a careful observation of the facts is important to discern the truth. And more importantly than just looking at the facts and the evidence, it becomes more important as we realize as we go through this that it's critical that we examine the truth that's found in the Word of God if we're to ascertain what God's plans are in our life. Uh, what's fascinating on the road to resurrection, this particular road was paved with, in the minds of the disciples with anticipation, excitement, and victory. And they often argued among themselves as to which of them would be greatest in this soon-to-be-established kingdom of God. What's fascinating is that the mother of James and John asked Jesus at one point, and these are her words, she said to Jesus, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. As the disciples continued to witness the signs and the wonders and the miracles that Jesus performed, they became, became more and more convinced that the kingdom of God would be established. In fact, Jesus often told them parables knowing that they had believed that the kingdom of God would soon be established. As we traveled the road to resurrection, as they approached Jericho and through Jericho and into Jerusalem, the anticipation grew to a mounting crescendo when on this particular day, which is today, we celebrate or we remember what is called the, the uh, triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. Some call it Palm Sunday, but basically it's a remembrance of this particular day when the day of the Lord or the day of visitation occurred to the nation of Israel. And the Bible says that Jesus rode into town as a, as a triumphant king, a peaceful king, who would one day set up his kingdom. And so it's not, it's not that hard to understand and realize that they believed the kingdom of God was about to be established immediately. And so they became excited about it. They anticipated it. They couldn't wait to see what God was going to do as he unveiled their version of what God's plan should be. But things quickly turned as the week progressed. It was followed by an impending triumph, was followed immediately by betrayal, it was followed by arrest, it was followed by abandonment, it was followed by ultimately crucifixion. And if you've got your Bibles with me, turn to Luke chapter 23 where we left off in our last study together. But as we see Luke chapter 23, we're, we're told that the multitudes wanted him crucified. The religious leaders wanted him crucified. And that's exactly what happened as Pilate turned him over to be crucified. And in Luke chapter 23, we'll pick up right where we left off in verse 44 to the end of the chapter, we read these words. It says, And it was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, the sun being obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the multitudes who came together for the spectacle when they observed what had happened began to return, beating their breasts. 
And all of his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. And behold, a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council and a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. And it was a preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed after and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. As we look at this, we must keep in mind what our Lord accomplished on the cross was an eternal transaction that, was, that involved him and the Father. He didn't die as a martyr who failed in some lost cause, and, uh, nor was he an example for people to follow. He died in fulfillment of the scriptures, and that's why it's so important that we observe and analyze and study carefully the written word of God. The Bible says that all scripture is inspired by God, literally means it's God-breathed, and that no man ever wrote down anything on his own, but it was the Spirit of God who moved through, through the writers as they present to us uh, in its original autographs or its original writings uh, a Bible without error, scriptures without error, ordained by God. And it's important that we look and examine carefully the evidence that we see before us in the Bible, because the Bible is the truth. Thy word is truth, the disciple Jesus said as the disciples asked, what is truth? Truth has often been a pursuit of many people trying to figure out what's the truth, how do we know the truth, how do we learn the truth, and God says his word is truth. His word is dependable. His word is reliable. You can bank on it. You can count on it. And as we go through this particular road to resurrection, we see over and over again it's the scriptures that God uses to try to get the attention of the people that he's trying to reach, including ourselves. It's interesting as we see this that we need a, a clear understanding of the scriptures because it's in the scriptures that God promised that his Messiah, his Savior, would come into the world and would shed his blood for the sin of humanity. Isaiah 53 is a good example, Psalm 22. And what's fascinating as you go through this particular account, as we look at the crucifixion, there are over 34 prophecies that are fulfilled as far as Jesus' death on the cross is concerned. Uh, eight of them that I found were in the book, or ten of them actually in the book of Isaiah. Eight of them were in Isaiah chapter 53. There were another ten or so that were found in the book of Psalms. And all throughout the Old Testament, God used his word so that people would know and understand that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and that's the Savior of the world. And so Jesus' death on the cross was an ordained plan of God from the very foundation of the world, that God was going to redeem mankind to himself, buy us back, those who were lost. And so as we look at all this, it's important to understand that Jesus was not guilty of anything. He did not die on the cross because he was guilty of any crime. He died on the cross because that was God's plan to redeem man back to God. And, and as we look at this, it's critical that we understand that God told us about it. And he told those at the particular time when Jesus died and physically saw it, he told them what to look for. He told them everything that they would need to know so that they would have faith in Jesus Christ. What's fascinating as you go through all of this, Barabbas knew that Jesus was innocent. Barabbas was a man who was let go or he was, he was exchanged for Jesus Christ. Jesus, an innocent man, was going to die as a substitute for a man who was guilty and knew that he was guilty. Barabbas knew that he deserved to die and yet here was Jesus dying in his place. As we go on, we see example after example of those who saw him, they knew he was innocent. Even Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, went back to the religious leaders and said, I have betrayed innocent blood. 
the charge on the cross above Jesus' head said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That was to be the charge that he was convicted of, the reason that he was put to death. But as we all know, it's true. Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews. He wasn't guilty of anything. The thief who was next to him, at least one of them finally came to realization and understanding that Jesus Christ was an innocent man. Later, we find it, it, it remarked by the centurion after he had seen Jesus die. He said, truly, this man was innocent. It's fascinating as we look at this that we begin to understand that Jesus Christ was innocent, and yet he chose to die in our place. He chose to give himself for the sins of the world. It's interesting because even Jesus said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve in what? And to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's really what we're looking at here. And as we go through this, I want to I note seven significant observations that I made as I went through this, not only in this particular passage as, as Luke records it, but also on some of the parallel accounts as we look at the gospel messages. Because as we look at all of these, we see uh, significance to the point where I don't think we can fully ever really appreciate the resurrection until we fully understand as best we can the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the events that took place that particular day. And the first thing I want to call to your attention is this. Look in verse uh, 44. We read these words. It says, And it was now about the sixth hour, or about noon, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, which would be three o'clock in the afternoon, the sun being obscured. It's interesting that the Bible says that there was darkness over the entire face of the world, that the world was in darkness at that particular time from noon till three o'clock. Now that wouldn't mean too terribly much other than the fact that we know it's a miracle of God, but don't forget the reason that Jesus and all the Jews that were there in the city of Jerusalem was to do what? Was to celebrate the Passover. And it's important that we understand what Passover was all about. And if you've got your Bible, turn back with me to the book of Exodus for a second, because I wanna show you some, something that's very significant as it relates to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, but also, to the plan of God from the very beginning. In Exodus chapter 10, verse 21 through 23, we see the ninth of 10 plagues that God had inflicted upon the nation of Egypt found in this particular passage. Notice what it is. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, and there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Wasn't it fascinating that the, the ninth plague that God inflicts upon the nation of Israel is that of darkness? And what's fascinating is the darkness lasted exactly three hours, and it was a darkness that was so oppressive that was felt by those who, who, who were embraced by it. There was an actual physical feeling that went along with it, an eerie feeling that there, there was something that, that was going on. And it was interesting as we look at this because for three hours, darkness fell upon the land. But notice this darkness immediately preceded what God was about to institute as far as the 10th plague was concerned. Look at chapter 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, it says, This month shall the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. 
Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. It says, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old, one without any blemish, one with no fault. It says, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, more, moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until the morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire." Now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beasts, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments, for I am the Lord. It says, and the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And he says, now this day shall be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Now, we need to, uh, to appreciate the crucifixion. We need to understand the significance of the Passover. What had happened immediately prior to this is that darkness had fallen on the land. For three hours, it was pitch black, and there was darkness across the land of Egypt. Now, immediately following that darkness was the Passover. And the Passover was initiated by God in an effort to teach not only them, but also us the significance of obedience to God, having faith in the Word of God. What he told them to do was you are to take a lamb, an unblemished lamb, something that has no fault whatsoever. You are to take that which is perfect, and, you, and that which is perfect is to be sacrificed on your behalf. Because what he was saying was, as he took the blood, he said, you shall put the blood on the doorpost of your house. And when God saw that you were covered by the blood, the angel of the Lord or the judgment of God would pass over that household and it would only affect those who did not have faith and trust in the word of God. Do you see any significance here? Jesus Christ had no blemish. Jesus Christ was innocent and he had no fault. He who knew who had no fault became sin on our behalf, the Bible says. The Bible says that when he shed his blood for those who have faith in the word of God that say that the work of God is to believe upon him in whom God has sent, that the work of God that's pleasing to God is that we believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And as crazy as it sounded to the nation of Israel, well, we don't get it. You mean because we just, we, we sacrificed a lamb and we put blood on the doorpost of our house that your judgment will pass over us and those who do not believe your word will be judged accordingly? And God said, that's it. That's the whole plan. That's it. It's simple. You believe me and you escape judgment. You do as I say and you escape judgment. You believe that there, there's, there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And so all of a sudden, what we see here is a picture of everything that the nation of Israel should have already understood. There was darkness that preceded the land. The Lamb of God was slain at a certain time in the day, right around 3 o'clock, the Bible says, that the Jews would slay those lambs around 3 to 5, early evening, the Bible says. So about 3 o'clock, they would slay the lamb. 
They would take the blood of the lamb and they would put it on the doorpost of their house and then God's judgment would pass over them. They continually celebrated this from that moment on. And so now here we are and there's darkness upon the land. They should have immediately realized what was going on. They were celebrating the Passover. They knew all the events. They knew exactly what the purpose was. They celebrated that because they believed in God and put the blood on the doorpost of their house that their children were not slain and they were not, and they were not uh, judged by God. And so here they were and there's darkness upon the face of the land. And where it was dark for, th for three days before in the nation of Egypt, it is now dark for three hours. The blood is shed for those who had faith and believed in that and did according to what God said. They were spared the judgment of God. What's fascinating is on both Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 and 46, and Mark chapter 15, they both record our Lord's cry at the close of the darkness. And in Hebrew, as a quotation of, of Psalm 22. And he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We're not exactly sure exactly what, what Jesus was trying to convey. He was forsaken of God as if he took on the sins of the world. He took on the sins of the world as a guilt offering for the sin of humanity. There was a sense where he was separated from the Father. But there was also a sense where rabbinical teachers would use the psalm or they would use this as a teaching, as a teaching style. For example, they would say in this particular case, Psalm 22 is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the first verse. Now, any good student of the Scripture would realize that Jesus was quoting from that particular passage. Anyone who was near the vicinity of the cross would have heard him say that. And immediately what God was trying to get their attention was to go back and search the Word of God for the truth of the Word of God. If they had gone back to Psalm 22 and read it, they would have been amazed at what they found. Because Psalm 22, there's 10 prophecies concerning the crucifixion of the Messiah or the Savior of the world. And it was written 800 years before anybody even heard of crucifixion. Could you imagine as they read that and they saw the things that were going on and you looked and saw, for example, that in Psalm 22, the Bible tells us that first of all, they pierced his hands and his feet. He was surrounded by his enemies. He was despised by people. Psalm 22, 2, there was darkness upon the face of the earth. Psalm 22.1, he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Psalm 22.17, they would not break his legs as was the custom of those who were dying on the cross to hasten their death. They would break the legs of those who were being crucified to, to uh, hasten their death. And the reason for it was the only way that anybody could stay alive on the cross was they continually pushed themselves up on the footpost that was at the bottom of the beam. And as they pushed themselves up, they would get breath and then they would slump back down. And they would do this for sometimes up to two or four days they would stay on the cross. It was a lingering death. It was a painful death. And in order at times to hasten that death, they would take and break the, the legs of those who were being crucified so they no longer had any strength to push themselves up to get breath. But the Bible says of Jesus, they would not have to break his legs. All of that is found in God's word in Psalm 22. Now, can you imagine standing around the cross and Jesus as a religious leader, one who, who prided yourself or took pride in knowing the scripture? And yet here was Jesus saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And never turning to the word of God to see what he was trying to say. It's fascinating when we consider how often we search for truth in all the wrong places. And God says that his word is truth. We need to go back to it. It's interesting, back to Luke chapter 23. In fact, in John chapter 19, we're told that Jesus cried with a loud voice, It is finished. It is finished. In John 17, he said that I have accomplished the work which you have sent for me to accomplish. 
that Jesus Christ finished it. It is done. It is finished. And it's important that we recognize and understand that because we live in a world today that wants to do something more than what Jesus had already done. The simplicity of the gospel message is this. You believe what God has to say that Jesus Christ shed his blood as a substitute for you and for me. All that God requires of us is that we believe that. That's what was so vivid of an illustration of the thief that was on his one side that said, you know what, don't you even fear God to his buddy? He said, don't you even fear God? And as he looked at Jesus, he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus immediately rewarded him by saying, today, today, the same thing he said to Zacchaeus was, today, salvation has come to this house. When he was talking to the thief, he said, today salvation has not only come to this house, but this very day you will be with me in paradise. Now think about what a reward that was to a guy who anticipated being on a cross probably for three, four, maybe even five days. And here he was only six hours on the cross and Jesus said, hey, don't worry about it, don't sweat it. Today you're coming with me and you're going to be with me in paradise. Jesus said the same thing to all of us in John 14. He says, don't be troubled that I'm going away. Because when I go away, I prepare a place for you. And if it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you that. You can bank on it. It's reliable. It's the word of God. And because I've told you that, I'm going to come again so that where I am, you will also be with me. And they're saying, well, how do we do that? How do we get there? Hey, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but me. It's as simple as that. But see, we live in a world that doesn't believe and doesn't want to trust God simply by faith. We live in a world because we're so prideful. We want to add something to what Jesus cried. It is finished. There is nothing left for you and me to do. And anything we try to do diminishes the significance or the value of what was already done. Think about this. If you took a priceless work of art, if you, let's just say you go to Paris and you go to the Louvre Museum and you walk in the Louvre Museum and you see the Mona Lisa and you say, it's just not quite done. And you go walking up with a, a, a paintbrush and a can. And if they don't shoot you first, you go over to it and you start doodling on it. What are you going to do to it? You're going to make it worthless. Right? See, this is what Jesus said. If you try to add to what he's already done, you have defamed and devalued the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The worth is in what he did. The value is when he did. And that's why when Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished, he meant it. It's done. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing that I can do. Why do we continually want to add something to what was already finished and is perfect? I say it's pride. I say it's man's effort of saying, but I don't want to do it your way, God. I want to do it my way. And God says, but there is no other way. Jesus said, there's no other way to heaven but through me. All roads don't lead to heaven. All beliefs don't lead to heaven. All religions don't lead to heaven. As sincere as those people are, they don't lead to heaven. Jesus said, it's all or nothing. You believe in me and you'll get there. If you don't, you'll be judged by God. God had told the nation of Israel that from the beginning. You put blood on the doorpost of your house and, I, and you're going you're gonna to be passed by. You're going to be passed over. God will not judge you. But if you don't do it, Hey, guess what? You will be judged just like everyone else. And so as we look at this, we need to realize what he was saying was, it is finished. There was darkness upon the land. The Lord cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out, it is finished with a loud voice. He addressed the Father in a final statement. He, he said this, Father, into, into thy hands I commit my spirit. 
and having said this, he breathed his last. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. And the reason I say don't miss it is this. Jesus Christ wasn't killed by man. Jesus Christ gave himself for us. Jesus Christ gave himself. Jesus Christ gave up his spirit. It was mind-boggling. It was mind-boggling. He gave himself willingly. He gave himself. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried this, but try this sometime. <laughs> try to give up your spirit. I mean, without a, you know, without a gun or a rope or something. I mean, just, just sitting there, try to give it up. You can't. Why? Because God is in control of life. Now, we can take one another's life, and we can even take our own life by other means. But Jesus Christ says, into thy hands I commit my spirit, and he breathed his last. He chose to give himself up at that moment in time. It, you, gotta, you, you can't do that as a mere human being. It's impossible. Jesus gave himself up. He gave himself up voluntarily. Look at Luke 23, 45. It says the sun was being obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. The Gospel of Mark tells us that the veil of the temple was in, torn in two from top to bottom. The veil of the temple was a place where only the high priest could go in to be accessible or in the presence of God. Don't miss this. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, the Bible says that the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And we're not talking about a cheap set of drapes you might have around your house. I mean, if you've ever been somewhere where there's a huge theater, maybe Radio City Music Hall, maybe the Pantages, or somewhere where there's a huge curtain, massive curtain, the Bible says that it was literally just ripped from the top to the bottom. Why? Because it was a symbol from God himself that now we, you and I, could have access to the very presence of God. There was no longer a need for a high priest because Jesus Christ became our high priest. There was no longer a need for man to represent man because the Bible tells us there is but one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ, our Lord. That Jesus Christ became our high priest. Jesus Christ became the mediator between God and man. And we have access in the very presence of God if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the veil was torn from the top to the bottom, signifying that now we have access to God. We don't have to go through another human being. We don't have to go through some other ritual. If you have faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you can now boldly approach the throne of grace because of Him. Not because of what you did, not because of what I did, because of what He's already done. You know, and man's just saying, here we go again. Man wants to sew that thing back up. Oh, sew back up. Well, see, especially religious people want to sew that thing up because they don't want people going directly to God. They're cutting, that's cutting them out. It's cutting out the middleman. They want people to still come to them. They still want to hold that power and influence over people so that they tell people, you've got to come to me. Confess your sins to me and I'll go make an offering for you. God said, it's done. It's finished. I don't have to do it anymore. Jesus Christ made that final offering. It was done. It was acceptable. It was pleasing to God. And now we all have access to God through who? Through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. All of this is taking place right before our eyes as we look at this crucifixion. And it's fa fabulous what we see taking place here. 
Luke records these words as we go through it. He says, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Isn't that fascinating? A centurion soldier who had witnessed many crucifixions before. I'll tell you what, between the darkness and the earthquake and how Jesus conducted himself on the cross, the conversion of the one thief who put his faith and trust into Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross, between everything that was going on, this centurion was blown away by what was happening. He was convinced without a doubt, surely this man was innocent. He began to praise God for what was going on. It's a fascinating study of those who are observing what was going on. It says, and his acquaintances and the women who gathered together from Galilee. But look at verse 48. The multitudes who came together for the spectacle, when they observed what had happened, they began to return. And look what it says. And they began beating their breasts. The, the symbolism of that is it was, it was those who were in mourning. And more importantly than that, it was those who felt a sense of guilt for what had just taken place. They walked away and they were, they were contrite before God. If we would have only said something, we should have let Pilate let him go. Why, why did we do what we did? And they walked away. Now in sports, it's kind of fascinating because there's a thing that goes on in sports and anybody plays it or watches it. When somebody makes a bad play or whatever, you'll see him point to themselves. They go like this. You know, they, they call it my bad. They go, my bad. My bad. Bad pass, whatever it was. My bad. And they, and, they will, and they will even hit themselves. Now, what's fascinating to me about that is they're saying, hey, I take the blame for that. That was my fault. It wasn't his fault. When everybody know around here, it was my fault. And these people, as they walk from the cross, they're saying, hey, this is our fault. My bad. This is our fault. It says, and the acquaintances and the women who gathered, accompanied him from Galilee, were standing at a distance, and they were seeing all these things. Now, as we shift gears, here's what we see. It says, and behold, a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, the Bible says. He had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb, cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. And it was a preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed after and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. This is fascinating. Follow through me with, uh, for a second because here's what happened. It says, Behold, a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council. Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, and so was Nicodemus. And in John's account, in John chapter uh, 19, we read the account where it says that Nicodemus, who came to Jesus, that's how he was always identified, the one who came to Jesus by night. Now, what's fascinating about it is this. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were members of the council. And the Bible tells us that neither one of them were part of the vote that took place to condemn Jesus to death. That something had taken place in their lives which was drastically different than the rest of the religious leaders who were there. Now I want you to follow with me for a second because when you put all the Gospels together, here's the picture that you get. Nicodemus at one point defended Jesus before the council. The council looked at him and said, you know, what's your problem? Are you from Galilee too? Because Nicodemus was saying, well, maybe he is the Savior of the world. Maybe he is God's promised one. Maybe he is the Messiah. And they looked at him and laughed and said, what, 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 are, you, what are you from Galilee too that you're sticking up for him? And here's what they said. Search the scriptures to see if a prophet could come from Galilee. I'm convinced of this, that Nicodemus searched the scriptures that he searched the Word of God. And as he was searching the Word of God, his buddy Joseph of Arimathea began to search with him. And they began to seek the truth. 
And they discovered the truth. And as they discovered the truth, they began to realize that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And as they searched the Scripture, they ran across all the prophecies of God talking about Jesus Christ. And what they did was they began to plan how they were going to fulfill God's Word. It's fascinating when you think about it. As we read through this, it says in Isaiah chapter, Isaiah chapter 9, as we look at this, it talks about how Jesus, Isaiah 53 verse 9, it talks about how Jesus would be buried among the wealthy even though it was appointed for him to die with criminals. As they were going through this, they were amazed by what was going on. Now don't forget, when Nicodemus came to Jesus at one point, Jesus told him that the Son of Man would be lifted up a clear understanding of crucifixion. Jesus had told Nicodemus, when Nicodemus came to him and asked him at night what a man has to do to get to heaven, Jesus said, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus was all confused about it. He couldn't figure it all out. But when in the course of that conversation, Jesus said to Nicodemus, and the Son of Man must be lifted up. He told him, the Son of Man will be crucified. Now, can you imagine as they went through and began to study Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and realize that what Jesus said was true, that he would be crucified? So what they did was they went out and they started to prepare for the death of Jesus Christ. They went out and they bought a tomb. The tomb was so close to the garden, there's no way that Joseph bought it for himself because as a wealthy person, he would want to be as far away from criminals as he could. He bought a tomb to prepare for Jesus himself. He went out and bought all the spices and prepared that and had it all ready ahead of time which is fascinating because during the Passover, you couldn't buy it. So it wasn't like they were standing there watching him die and said, man, you know what? We need to go buy some spices for his burial. They had already went out and did it. They had already bought the, the, the tomb. They had already had it all prepared. And you know what? I wouldn't doubt for six hours they were hiding in that tomb. And when they heard Jesus say it is finished, they began their final preparation. It says that Joseph went to Pilate and said, I like the body of Jesus. Pilate was amazed that Jesus was already dead. He called for the centurion soldier and said, hey, did he die already? And they said, yeah, he did. He's dead. And they had pierced his side and water and blood came out. They didn't break his legs because he was already dead. He was already dead and Pilate was amazed by it. And because it was confirmed that he was dead, he said, go ahead, you can take his body. Well, Nicodemus stayed at the cross to make sure that the Roman soldiers didn't take that body down and throw it in the garbage heap where they threw all the other criminals. He stood there and he, he guarded that. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, was now in broad daylight boldly professing his faith in the Son of Man. Fascinating what's going on. And so as they take Jesus now to the tomb, they prepare him for burial. There's no question in my mind that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea became believers in Jesus Christ because they took the time and they searched the Scripture and they searched the Word of God. How do we know that they became believers in Jesus Christ? I'll tell you why I believe it's true. Because when they had nothing to gain and everything to lose is when they stood boldly and professed that they were ones who would follow Jesus. They took his body off of the cross. Why did they do that? I'll tell you why they do it. Because they knew also that Jesus Christ would raise from the dead. They knew that he was coming back as the word of God had promised. That was God's plan from the beginning. They read the story. They knew the ending. They were willing to take a chance. If they did not believe in Jesus Christ, they would have ran like everybody else did because all their hopes and dreams would have been vanished when Jesus died on the cross. But no, they read the book. They saw the ending. And they took him, and they were part of the plan of God so that Jesus would not be, be buried with the criminals, but he would be buried by a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. Man, this is exciting when you look at all this and you go through it. And what's fascinating to me is, is in conclusion, what I want to summarize everything is this. 
Max Lucado writes in one of his books, it's called No Wonder They Call Him Savior. His account or his version of what took place with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus as they came to the cross of Jesus Christ. And in conclusion, I want to read this to you because I think the impact is what it should be, and that's this. Joseph of Arimathea kneels behind the head of Jesus, and he tenderly wipes the wounded face. With a soft, wet cloth, he cleans the blood that came in the garden, that came from the lashings and from the crown of thorns. With this done, he closes his eyes tight. Nicodemus unrolls some linen sheeting that Joseph brought and places it on the rock beside the body. The two Jewish leaders lift the lifeless body of Jesus and set it on the linen. It says, as, and parts of the body are now anointed with perfumed spices. As Nicodemus touches the cheeks of the master with aloe, the emotion he has been containing escapes. His own tears fall on the face of the crucified king and he pauses to brush away another. The middle-aged Jew looks longingly at the young Galilean. It says, it's a bit ironic that the burial of Jesus should be conducted not by those who had boasted that they would never leave, but by two members of the Sanhedrin, two representatives of the very religious group that killed the Messiah. It says, but then again, of all who were indebted to this broken body, none were as much as those two. Many had been freed from the deep pits of slavery and sickness. Many had been found in the darkest of tunnels, tunnels of perversion and death. It says, but no tunnel was ever darker than the tunnel from which these two had been rescued, and that was the tunnel of religion. It says, they don't come any darker. Its caverns are many and its pitfalls are deep. In subterranean, its subterranean stench reeks with the spirit of good intentions. Its endless maze of channels are cluttered with the disoriented. Its paths are covered with cracked wineskins and split wine. It says, you wouldn't want to carry a young faith into this tunnel. It says, young minds probing with questions quickly stale in the numbing darkness. Fresh insights are squelched in order to protect fragile traditions. Originality is discouraged and curiosity is stifled and priorities are reshuffled. It says, Christ had nothing but stinging words of rebuke for those who dwell in these caverns. Hypocrites, he called them, godless actors, fence builders, inflexible judges, unauthorized hedge trimmers, hair splitters, blind guides, whitewashed tombs, snakes, vipers. It says Jesus had no room for those who specialized in making religion a warlord and faith a foot race. He had no room for that at all. It says Joseph and Nicodemus were tired of it too, for they had seen it for themselves. They had seen the list of rules and the regulations. They had watched the people tremble under unbearable burdens. They had heard the hours of senseless wrangling over legalistic details. It says they had worn their robes and sat at the places of honor and seen the word of God be made void by it all. It says they had seen religion become the crutch that cripples and they wanted out. It says it was a sizable risk. The high society of Jerusalem wasn't going to look too kindly on two of their religious leaders bearing a revolutionist. But for Joseph and Nicodemus, the choice was obvious. The stories this young preacher from Nazareth told rang with the truth that they had never heard in their cavern. And besides, they'd much rather save their souls than their own skin. So they lifted the body slowly and they carried it to the unused tomb. And in doing so, they lit a candle in that deep, dark cavern. Supposing these two had been observing the religious world during the last 2,000 years, they'd probably found things not to be too terribly different says there is still a sizable amount of evil that wears the robe of religion and uses the Bible as a sledgehammer. It is still fashionable to have sacred titles and wear holy chains. It is still often the case that one has to find faith in spite of the church instead of in the church. 
says, but they also observe the just, the just one, the religious get much, too much religion and the righteous too right, that God finds somebody in the cavern who will light a candle. It was lit by Luther at Wittenberg, by Latimer in London, by Tyndale in Germany. John Knox fanned the flame as a galley slave and Alexander Campbell did the same as a preacher. And the thing that these men had in common was that they all were sold out and in love with the truth of the word of God. They stuck to the word of God. They preached the word of God. And they weren't concerned about their position in life and their religion, but they were more concerned about finding the truth that God had for all of us. He says, it's not easy to light a candle in a dark cavern, yet those of us whose lives have been enlightened because of these courageous men are eternally grateful. And of all the acts of enlightenment, there is no doubt which one was the most noble. He said, you can take them down now, soldier. I'll take care of them. How about you? I was thinking of that as I studied and went through the word and saw the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and realized that, you know what, there are a lot of people who are just tired of religion. But there are a lot of people who make a living in the religion business that don't want people to get tired of religion because it's going to cut them out of the loop. And the problem that we have is we need to go back to the truth of the word of God. The Bible says, God, your word is truth to sanctify us in truth. We need to go back to see what God has to say as far as truth is concerned. Don't misunderstand what's going on here. God from the very beginning had told us that his Messiah, his Savior would be sacrificed. John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus coming, told the crowd, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus said he would be lifted up and all the, those who would look upon him would be saved. God told Israel, put the blood on the doorpost of your house and that the judgment of God would surely pass over you who have faith in my word. Folks, if you're tired of religion, it's time that you get right with God and come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I know I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of people who use other people and manipulate them for their own purposes not wanting to do anything as far as turning them to believe in Jesus Christ, not wanting to relinquish their power and their authority, not wanting to dismantle their traditions that they've had long-standing nonetheless. I'm tired of people who want to manipulate people and, and lay a guilt trip on them that somehow if you do enough good stuff for this church or that church, if you stop drinking, you stop smoking, you stop doing that, you start giving money, you put your name on a window that's etched somewhere on a pew of a church and somehow that'll make you pleasing to God. I'm tired of all of that because it's not true. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were tired of it too. And they said, it's time, men, that we search the Scripture. And if that means we don't have a job anymore, then praise God because we're not needed. But our purpose is to point people to the Savior of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Folks, don't ever, ever confuse people around you that somehow they can do something that's pleasing to God other than believing in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said it best, for I have determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what it's all about. That's why He died, to redeem man to God. Have you put your faith and trust in Him? If not, do it today, because there's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. Father, thank You for Your Word. We just thank You for the truth of it that sets us free as we believe in Jesus Christ. What a tremendous picture on the cross that we see that all of your word points to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross as a substitute for us and for the forgiveness of our sins, for those who would believe in him. 
God, we just thank you that it's by grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves, that it's not a matter of works, so and none of us will boast, but all of us will give you the glory and the praise and, and praise Jesus Christ for giving himself for us. And we just thank you and praise you in his wonderful name. Amen. Reminder, next week, next week, two services, no class. In two weeks, we'll have the sixth and final message of what we're doing here. And then after that, we'll have, we're going to start the study of the book of Daniel. But don't forget, next week, there's no class. Two Easter services, 845 and 1030. And I'll see you the week after that.